If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got a conversation about the role of medieval women in the Crusades with Natasha Hodgson. Natasha is Senior Lecturer in Medieval History at Nottingham Trent University, where she's also the Director of the Centre for the Study of Religion and Conflict. Putting the questions to her was our content director, Dave Musgrove. I'm here in Nottingham today, and I am joined by Dr. Natasha Hodgson, who is director of the Centre for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Nottingham Trent University. And she has a particular interest in the history of the Crusades, uh, but more specifically, women in the Crusades. Um, You've written a book, Natasha, entitled Women Crusading and the Holy Land in Historical Narrative, uh, along with numerous other journal articles and some other stuff on masculinities that we were just talking about before we started recording. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about women in the, in the Crusades. Um, I've uh, read, uh, read through your book and uh, found it fascinating, lots of things to talk about. So um, first up, the Crusades, I think it's not unreasonable to say would be widely seen as a pretty male thing. When you think about the Crusades, you think of the big figures, you know, you're Richard I, you're Philip II, you're Baldwin of Jerusalem, you know, big, mm-hmm. big male names. Um, am I completely off off kilter to start with by by saying it's a it's a male thing? Not at all. Um, I think that is how crusading is sort of perceived in the popular Western imagination these days. You know, it seemed to be a knightly endeavour. It's the kind of thing that people associate with kind of romantic ideals of knights on quests, um, and you know, uh, and the sort of delivery of the Holy Land. Um, a lot of these images are actually kind of more a product of later sources, so particularly 19th century um, art and um, literature, uh, things like Walter Scott, for example, you know, they kind of have cemented this idea of crusading in people's minds as a knightly endeavour, when in fact, you know, there are a large swathe of people uh, from across all social levels going on crusade during the the period in which crusading's at its height. Okay. And do, I mean, we talked about this before. And do you want to very quickly sketch a, 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 a mini history of the Crusades? Just, you know, just, yeah, just okay. A, I mean, most people, as you say, would be familiar with some big names who went on crusades or maybe an expedition or two. 
Um, obviously, we have the First Crusade, which is called in 1095 by Pope Urban II. Uh, and this is the sort of major event which sets crusading in motion over the next few centuries. It's the success of the capture of the holy city of Jerusalem in 1099, which makes people believe, actually, this is something that God wants us to do. And they continue doing it from that point onwards. So we have a series of major expeditions, but we also have a lot of smaller ones uh, as people you know, want to visit the holy places um, and this strong connection between crusade and pilgrimage means that people are traveling back and forth to the Holy Land for a good 200 year period in which Latin uh, settlers are present in the Levant. Brilliant. OK, good summation. <laughs> um, OK, so um, so your work has been trying to readdress this uh, this story a bit and try and put women back into the picture for mm-hmm. us. So give us a sense of, of the main areas in which we can see women uh, in the story. Um, So I've tried to think about this in terms of three different groups of women, really. Um, First of all, those women who do actually go on crusade. So they are present. Um, We know less about them than we do the men, but we can trace at least 91 individuals who take the cross during this period, 1095 to 1291. Um, And then, you know, large numbers of women are also mentioned en masse by chroniclers, um, although some of those accounts may be uh, a bit questionable. Um, Then we have those women who are present in the settler society in the Latin East. So the ones who either come out with the crusaders or uh, crusaders marry and develop family relationships with and settle with out in the East. Um, they then have a role in kind of providing continuity out in the new settler society and their lives are often affected by new crusades coming out, marrying into new groups of crusaders, that kind of thing. Um, And then we have the women back at home um, whose lives are also significantly affected by this large portion of the male population disappearing off on crusade and whether that involved supporting them financially or whether that involved taking on the reins of you know more traditional male roles while men were away uh, those are all different ways in which women's lives were affected and of course there are the ones who are victims you know of crusading activity as well so there's there's lots of different areas in which we can think about um, women's involvement in the Crusades. And uh, maybe we'll take those one by one in a second, but we should say we're talking, uh, your research is focused on the experience of, of women from Christendom, from the Western world. Have you, have you right. looked at um, the people on the other side of the story at all? Um, certainly, you know, we do get uh, the uh, accounts of uh, Muslim women being involved in some crusading activity, uh, most often as, say, victims of crusading activity. Um, but if we're looking at them through the lens of Western Latin sources, we also have to treat their depiction with some suspicion uh, at times. So sometimes, for example, um, I mean, Guibert of Nogent describes um, women in Kerboga of Mosul's army. Uh, this is the army that besieges the first crusaders inside Antioch in 1098 as, uh, as like Diana with archers uh, present and, you know, kind of... Um, in quite masculine terms. Um, we also hear about, um, in several sources, Kerboga's mother, who was supposedly a sorceress, who came and tried to persuade him not to fight against the Franks because they were definitely going to beat him. I mean, you know, we, we have to take stories like that with a pinch of salt. So it's it's difficult to know precisely, you know, who uh, who's involved. Um from the Frankish perspective, at least. The Arabic sources do tell us a bit about um, some women who were involved in positions of power, particularly during the early 12th century in the sort of Turkic areas. Um, But possibly one of the most interesting, actually, is from a 13th century example of of, uh, Shajar al-Dur, who is um, essentially briefly Sultan of Egypt while uh, Louis IX's crusade is attacking and she's actually kind of involved in turning them back at Mansura. So yeah, she's, you know, there, there are Muslim women involved as well. Of course. She sounds fascinating. Yeah. Sounds like something you want to know more about. Yeah. Um, okay, so going back to, um, to to the subjects of your research, so women who went on crusade, you, you said you'd uh, identified 91 individuals or, or thereabouts or yeah. their reference. Who were they? What were they doing? I mean, so the majority of the ones that we know about 
are obviously noble. And this is largely to do with the fact that the priority of people recording events at the time, uh, they were most interested in the deeds of the aristocracy, the important people. So if they appear in chronicle sources, you know, they're most likely, and they're named, then they're likely to be important noble people. People like Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine or uh, Marguerite of Provence, you know, these big names. Um, when it gets kind of lower down the social scale, it's a little bit more difficult to find out. Um, so less an ability we might find about, say, for example, from crusade charters. If uh, a crusader left a charter behind to say that they were intending to go uh, to the Holy Land. And in those cases, it's very often a husband and wife who might be doing that. Um, or you might hear about them on their return. If they gave a gift of relics or something to a monastery, uh, they might then, you know, mention that they've been on crusade together. Um, and then when it comes to people really sort of at the bottom of the scale, then we tend to know less about individuals, but more about chroniclers' perspectives of, uh, you know, these kind of large groups of people, which included women. And very often they tend to be a bit more negative because they see these people as slowing down the army, their non-combatants using up supplies and food. And possibly the women are leading the crusaders into sexual sin and therefore uh, not really wanted on crusade. OK, we'll come back to that <laughs> in, in, a, in a minute. Um, so is there um, kind of you know, the obvious question, is there any evidence that any of these women actually got involved in any of the fighting? Um, again, sources are a little bit untrustworthy when it comes to this. Um, certainly the uh, Western sources do not really want to highlight um, women in fighting roles. They want to preserve, because they're coming from an ecclesiastic official perspective, most of them, um, you know, they want to, uh, they want they're being these texts are being circulated to kind of tell the story of crusading and inspire others in the West to take up the cross. Um, so they don't necessarily really want lots of stories about women fighting. Um, but what we do get is women fighting in extremists, um, women who are, say, for example, defending the camp at the siege of, of Damietta um, in, during the Fifth Crusade. Um, they are, you know, they repulse a Muslim attack because they're the only ones left defending the camp. Um, and, you know, God then lends them strength beyond their natural, the natural weakness of their sex in order to do that. So that's kind of OK. So in emergency circumstances, it's OK. Um, and usually when women are described as doing that, they're, they're, they're sort of being told that they are, we're being told that they're taking on masculine roles. So they, you know, that they're described almost as being like men when they do it. Um, there's one interesting example of a, uh, from a Western perspective, of women at the Siege of Acre on the Third Crusade who, when a uh, Muslim ship is captured, we're told that the women put them to death using knives instead of swords. And this is seen to be a, a shameful and painful death because women don't have the strength to, to, to do this effectively. Um, so again, you know, we get those kind of odd examples. Um, the only ones really that we have about women fighting as warriors come from an Islamic perspective. And again, a source like, for example, Imad ad-Din uh, for the Third Crusade tells us that there were Frankish women wearing armour on the battlefield, and we didn't even know there were women until we stripped the dead. Uh, and then it was realised that some of them were women. Um, but that comes just after a big, long story about how uh, an entire ship of prostitutes came over to support the crusade with lots of very graphic descriptions about all <laughs> said prostitutes. Um, so whether we can kind of trust that source or whether it's telling us more about, you know, what they thought of the Franks and their kind of morality and their, uh, you know, the, the, the way in which they allowed women to have these strange and unusual roles is, is also open to question. Okay. Um, a couple of interesting women who uh, I, I wanted to just pick up on. Um, th th there's a story of this woman who followed her goose on crusade because she believed it was filled with the Holy Spirit. Just <laughs> we can't, we can't oh, the goose woman. Well. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is a story that crops up in two of the sources for the first crusade. And interestingly, again, it's one of these examples where this is a woman of lower social status. I mean, you know, you can't really 
get much lower down than looking after the geese. That's a pretty you know, menial task. Um, but here in Albert of Arken, um, he tells us that, um, you know, a group of people follow a, a woman um, a, who's, who's following a goose and also a she-goat. So, that, that, so he's saying that it's happening in different places um, and he calls them stupid and insanely irresponsible or something like that. So he's been quite critical um, and sees this as, you know, a, a foolish endeavour. Um, and similarly, Guibert of Nogent, who talks about this, gives us a bit more information. And there he tells us that the goose actually is following the woman um, and they thought it to be imbued with the Holy Spirit it gets all the way to the altar of the church at Cambrai and people kind of treat it with reverence. Um, and then um, they get to Lorraine and the goose dies. And, oh. <laughs> and Guibert says, well, it would have got to Jerusalem quicker if the, if the woman had cooked it in Etis. So, <laughs> so um, I think in both cases, um, it's an example of the sorts of people they don't want on crusade. Um, you know, these kind of foolish people who don't have the money, who don't have the resources, um, who aren't really going to have an effect in the Holy Land. They want military fighting men. Uh, okay, so it's mm. used to, to exemplify so it's that. Actually, yeah, it's right. used to kind of discredit. So, so there's a role that gender plays in some of these texts of actually sort of discrediting those undesirables on crusade. So presumably she doesn't get named. This no. no. You mentioned um, Eleanor of Aquitaine and other sort of fairly big figures, but what about Margaret of Beverly? Well, she is one of the more fascinating characters on Crusade, I think, and more so because she's not precisely a noble woman. I mean, she must have been of fairly independent means. Uh, she's sometimes called Margaret of Beverly, sometimes called uh, Margaret of Jerusalem. Uh, she was born out in the Holy Land, um, while her parents were on pilgrimage there sometime in the mid-12th century. And then they come back to Beverly in Yorkshire, just north of Hull. And um, she grows up there. She has a younger brother, Thomas, who ends up in the circle of uh, Thomas of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett. Okay. Um, and her brother goes into exile with Thomas Beckett in France and ends up in the monastery of Froidmont. Um, we don't know whether Margaret ever got married or, or anything like that, but it seems that once he's out of the picture, she is freed up in later life to return to the land of her birth. So she goes back to um, she goes back to Jerusalem, and she arrives just in time for Saladin to besiege the city in 1187. That's unfortunate. Time. Yes, <laughs> and she fights on the walls of Jerusalem. So here is one example of potentially a woman fighting. But what we're told is that she. Uh, she um, carries water to the troops on the walls. She wears a cooking pot on her head as a helmet and she throws, you know, weapons at the enemy. So she's she's kind of not in an official capacity, but again, in extremists, she's, she's trying to, to fight. And um, she um, gets wounded by a, a millstone, which is thrown onto the walls and she gets shrapnel in her leg from the, uh, from the millstone and has a scar. Uh, to show for it. Um, and then following Saladin's capture of the city, um, she is um, one of the lucky few who has enough money to buy her way out of captivity. Um, but soon afterwards is then taken into captivity and spends 15 months as a slave doing hard labour. Um, she uh, manages to um, get bought out of slavery uh, continues doing various um, pilgrimages around the Holy Land, um, has another brief period of slavery. Um, she, she carries with her a Psalter, a prayer book, and this is her one prized possession. Um, following all of those adventures, it seems that the aftermath of the Third Crusade, in 1192, she travels home with the Third Crusaders after having been allowed to visit the Holy Places by Saladin. And then goes on more pilgrimage. Uh, she goes to uh, Compostela, she goes to Rome, and finally ends up in France meeting up with her brother. And um, he doesn't recognise her, we're told, because it's been such a long time since they've seen each other. And she has to tell them the names of their parents uh, so that he knows who she is. Um, and then he encourages her to enter a nunnery, which she does, a Cistercian convent in near Léon. And uh, she spends the next 18 years of her life there. And we know about all this because her brother writes down her story after her death in uh -huh. 12, around 1214. And it's this kind of poetic 
elegy. And there are obviously, you know, very sort of uh, Christ-like spiritual elements with her kind of wandering in the wilderness and going to all these holy places. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's such a fascinating story. And it's obviously something that he thought the Cistercian nuns of her convent would like to read and reflect on after her death uh, and to sort of celebrate her life. Um, so, yeah, she's one of the most fantastic, uh, you know, characters, I think, that we come across. Yeah, brilliant. Is this so this idea of her fighting with a cooking pot on her? Head, yes. Is that, is that in some way sort of mocking her? That... Um, it almost seems to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, that she's that this is such an ad hoc experience. Um, but but it's also a kind of, you know, I'm doing what I can. You yeah. know, uh, you know, this is an important, you know, th- for her the crusade is kind of a, a um, I guess it, it's something. It's, it's about her devotion to Christ, and um, and so is the ent- her entrance into the convent. And so she's doing what she can with what's available to her as a woman, um, and you know taking on manly roles when necessary as an example to others. I think is, okay. is sort of key message there. So so sounds like she wins. Uh, to the Holy Land in her own capacity, uh, sort of under her own steam. Yes. Yeah. But um, there's this interesting bit here about uh, how wives could uh, either refuse permission for their husbands to go on crusade or it actually had a legitimate right to go on crusade with their husbands. Am I am I right with those two points? Yeah, I mean, the, the marriage vow is, um, is an interesting one in the sense that um, it seems that from the early stages... Um, women were n- not really encouraged to go on crusade. Um, and there were concerns that if men were spending a long time away from their wives, that either husband or wife might be tempted into adultery. Um, you know, these these trips to the Holy Land, you're looking at kind of two years at least round trip, and, and it takes longer for, for some crusades. So both people have to be in agreement that during that time they will not render unto each other uh, anybody else the the conjugal debt as it were so it's it's almost like you know they have to agree to continence while the two of them are apart um and um obviously some crusaders decide to take their wives with them and if they do that might be seen as an indication that they were looking to find somewhere to settle as opposed to to thinking about returning but some husbands and wives do go and return um, but there is this constant worry about, you know, wives inhibiting men from going on crusade, men being too worried about their wives and children that they might not take the cross. So the church puts in place these special protections. Um, so you are entitled to the protect. If you take the cross, you're entitled to the protection of the church for your lands and property um, while while you're away. And then a wife, if they experience some trouble, can appeal to the church for help. Um, while they're away and you know this this happens with varying degrees of success but we do have some fairly high profile examples like Sybil of Flanders who um, um, she while her husband Thierry is off on crusade Baldwin the fourth of Hino tries to invade she's heavily pregnant and has to kind of coordinate a military action against him and sort of calls on the church for aid in her right as, as uh, for, through the protection of the church. Okay. Um, but but there are some examples of wives going on on crusade with their husband. Yeah. And what, how did that go? Do we have any evidence of you know what, what's how what, it seems like a, a slightly unusual thing to do to go on crusade with your wife? Is that do we get any examples of, of, of the of the relationship? Um, well, yes. I mean, I think the most famous example is is going to be um, Louis the Ninth and his wife Marguerite of Provence. Um, so they go on crusade together. Um, she has a fairly key role in the history of, of Joinville, who writes about Louis's uh, time on crusade. I think because Joinville himself had a reasonably close relationship with the Queen. So we find out a bit more about how they are feeling and, 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 and getting on with each other. And at one point, he, he thinks that Louis's, you know, rather cold towards her and, you know, doesn't pay her enough attention. Um, but they they managed to have three children while on that crusade so um you know there's uh um there's still obviously marital activity going on and and margaret's not criticized for any of, of that sort of thing um she's also in a position where when louis is taken into captivity after the battle of mansura 
Um, she is effectively in charge of the army and she's heavily pregnant in Damietta, um, you know, trying to negotiate with the enemy and build up a ransom to get Louis back and begging with, you know, various groups not to not to abandon them and disappear. Um, so, yeah, you know, she was in a, a very difficult situation, uh, but without her feasibly, you know, the, the, uh, they wouldn't have been able to raise the ransom. So, um, so yeah, at times, you know, as in the same way as in the West, when uh, male authority was lacking, women could step in to that breach and, you know, kind of take control of events, but usually only in those extreme circumstances. Okay. Um, having said that, um, attitudes towards wives do change in the 13th century um, a bit more. So Innocent III, um, during his papacy, he tries to um, be a bit more inclusive towards women in the sense that he allows them to have spiritual benefits, uh, the spiritual benefits that he gives to crusaders if they finance someone to go on crusade. So he's trying to kind of allow them the spiritual benefits that they want, but stop them from actually participating quite so much. Um, so it's a kind of double whammy, really. Um, and it's at a time when Crusading is becoming more professionalised. Uh, people tend to travel more by ship. So really then, I think we're beginning to see fewer women getting involved um, on a kind of grassroots level in crusading than we saw in the big armies that were going across by land um, in the 12th century. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We then have another example from Gerald of Wales. Um, he talks about a particular nobleman whose wife, who, who takes the cross, but when he gets home, his wife says, no way, you can't go. Um, and then um, a few days later, she rolls over in her sleep and kills her child in her sleep. And this is seen as a judgment of God for, for her not allowing him to go on crusades. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. So um, do, do we have much of a sense of the, of the makeup of these crusader parties then? So uh, you had uh, some numbers in, uh, in, in one of your sections, which was uh, on the St. Victor, a crusade ship of 1250, there were 42 uh, of the 342 common people en route to the Holy Land were women. So um, mm -hmm. a, a percentage of, of that crusader party were female. Yeah. Um, so, so is that... Is that indicative? Is that a, a good sort of number to be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it's an interesting one. That one. I mean, it's a. It's 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 described as a, a ship carrying pilgrims. Um, so again, you know, are, is this just kind of the normal pilgrim traffic? One of the big problems for women is how do we distinguish between women as crusaders or or just ordinary pilgrims? Because um, a lot of the time, you know. There isn't a word for crusade in, in the 12th century. And those who are on crusade are usually just described as pilgrims. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't... That, that ship list, you know, could be just ordinary pilgrimage traffic. It could be that, um, you know, these are people involved um, or, or going out to support Louis the... Um, well, Louis the Ninth Crusade is happening in Egypt at that time. So it's... Um, it's 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 questionable really whether those women could be called crusaders, but um, certainly it tells us that pilgrim traffic is ongoing to the Holy Land, you know, throughout this period, and that there is a desire amongst women to go to the holy places. And the interesting thing with that as well is that many of those are unattached women, so you might find, for example, a group of widows um, might travel together um, in order to you know ensure their safety on pilgrimage. But there's always concern about you know whether they can be safe. Hmm. But notwithstanding those reservations, there must have been uh, a requirement for certain roles to be fulfilled, fulfilled in any crusader party that may have been traditional women's roles, you know, mm -hmm. healthcare, medicine. Yeah. But, you know, presumably there were there were jobs that needed doing that would have 
that would have been suited to women of the age. Yes, um, and you do find women in auxiliary roles um, quite a lot in in the source material. So, um, I mean, this is one of the things that sort of first interested me in in the topic when I when I came to study it was, um, you know, you'd have these big departure scenes at the beginning where the Crusaders said goodbye to their wives and, you know, then their loved ones and all the rest of it. And then all of a sudden, there'd be a little sentence here or there saying, oh, and the women did this or the women did that. It's like, who are these women and where did they come from? Uh, Very often they're involved in doing things like um, uh, helping the army build camps, digging ditches, bringing water to fighting soldiers. So providing, you know, essentially sort of basic food and, and, and looking after animals yeah. um, so so all of those kinds of things um, so traditional kind of servant roles um, also um, holding markets you know so so getting involved in, in kind of in ensuring that, that food supply is going on we have a, a female practitioner of medicine who looks after St Louis when he's ill following the um, Battle of Mansura um, so yeah, there are they do perform these these kinds of roles as well. The most famous one is the, are the lice pickers or the washerwomen. Um, so you have um, uh, in the ordinances of Henry II when he was planning to go on on the Third Crusade, he said uh, only washerwomen of good repute can come. <laughs> and similarly, on the Third Crusade, when they were um, uh, traveling, uh, um, there was a recommendation that only only sort of washwomen who were as good as monkeys for picking fleas, says uh, Amboise, um, were allowed to come with them. So this was seen to be an important role. Okay, yeah. but on on in these crusades parties, you've, you've alluded to this earlier. There is this question of the of the um, of the danger that women posed to these mm-hmm. crusade parties. I suppose not only in um, uh, in the fidelity of the crusades, but also the spiritual purity of the Crusades, is that a thing? Yeah, I mean, usually sort of, even when taking a pilgrimage vow, you know, the idea about this is penance. And if you're in a state of penance, you, know, you don't really want to be engaging in um, sort of sexual activity and those kind of things. So, so when a, a crusader takes a vow, you know, they're essentially becoming a temporary ecclesiastic to some extent. And, you know, the idea of illicit sexual activity in particular is frowned upon. Um, there are questions over whether it was OK to have sex with your wife while you were on crusade or not. Um, it was and, OK for Louis. Well, but yeah, exactly. that. And, but that source is written by a secular author. So he's potentially not so bothered. Um, I mean, he, he does have a certain morality and certainly doesn't think it's appropriate for people to be engaging with prostitutes, which he does criticise people for. Mm. Um so I think there are big concerns that if the Crusaders step out of line and are sinful, then the Crusade will not be successful. They will not achieve military success. And we see particularly on the First Crusade, there are times when, you know, they have penitential processions. They have big meetings where they set out, you know, rules for behaviour because things have been going badly. And in order to make sure they're successful, they need to ensure that um, that the Crusaders aren't being sinful. And um, one of the big cases is the Siege of Antioch. Now, this was an incredibly hard siege. It was eight months. They were stuck outside the city, uh, constantly being um, attacked by various different forces. Um, and um, there was a lot of concern about um, uh, the, the kind of spiritual purity of the Crusaders. Um, so we have a situation where they, you know, have a big council and they decide to implement, you know, quite strict rules about sexual engagement and all of this kind of thing. And when shortly afterwards we, the, a, a prostitute is found with her pimp, in one source we get told he was a cleric, uh, and they are stripped naked and whipped through the camp as an example to everybody of not to engage in this type of behaviour. Um, Fulker of Chartres who wasn't actually there, also tells us that all the women were put away from the camp, both uh, you know the married and the unmarried. But again, he, he wasn't there, so whether we can fully believe his sources is, is open to question. But certainly it was something that people were concerned about and um, you know it comes across very strongly in the sources that this type of behaviour will not make a successful crusade. Okay. 
Right, we talked a bit a bit there about uh, about the women who went on crusades, but you also mentioned the ones who who stayed at home, and mm-hmm. you you um, flagged up the uh, the fundraising role that some of these women played. So mm-hmm. tell me a bit about that. How important were women as as uh, as the fundraisers for the crusade? Um, well, they could they could be involved in a number of different ways. Um, so um, from the earliest stages, we do see, for example, in crusade charters, um, women giving assent to some of their lands being mortgaged or um, possibly even sold in order to help finance a, a crusader to go on crusade. And then, as I say, with Innocent III, we get this new kind of development um, where basically, you know, anyone can contribute financially to the crusade, uh, you know, and can give as much or as little as they have towards it and get those spiritual rewards that they want. So that allows women then to donate, to take the cross, um, but then commute their vows for cash. So they can pay a fee and that will go towards the general pot to support a knight to go on crusade instead. And that becomes the kind of norm going forward. But of course, women um, could be involved in other ways as well. Prayer was also seen to be a a very effective thing. So... um, uh, Anne Lester's book on um, Cistercian nuns um, is particularly eloquent on this and talking about how, you know, these women were seen to be providing spiritual support by uh, by praying on behalf of the Crusaders. And this is something that people were keen to uh, to encourage and create connections with um, those monasteries. Um, In addition, um, we have specific holy women who get involved in the idea of crusading. So, um, Philip of Flanders, when he goes on his crusade in 1177, writes to Hildegard of Bingen as a sort of famous 12th century visionary, asking her, you know, how do I make a successful crusade? You know, so he seeks her advice. So there's, there's a variety of different ways in which they could be involved in sort of financial and spiritual support. And then there's the practical day-to-day running of affairs. So you might find individuals like Adela of Bois, for example, who acts as regent while her husband, Stephen of Bois, goes on crusade. She's the daughter of William the Conqueror um, and quite a formidable woman by all accounts. Um, Stephen himself is um, uh, taken ill at the siege of Antioch and returns home. Uh, He's one of those so-called deserters from the First Crusade. And apparently when he gets back, she's so ashamed of him that she gives him a flea in his ear uh, in the bedroom and tells him to go back on crusade, which he does and then dies uh, in 1101. Right. So, yeah. Is there any sense that um, uh, there's there's anything going on like in the Second World War when women were, uh, they became land girls and they were able to take mm. on these masculine roles and and, and sort of and change, change the paradigm for themselves a bit? Is, did anything like that happen uh, in the crusader period? Um, I think the question is, like, what was the norm uh, at that time? And, you know, we do tend to think um, that noble women were quite restricted. Um, But actually, recent works do tend to suggest that actually, you know, women were taking control in the absence of husbands on quite a regular basis. And if they weren't fighting on the crusades, they would be fighting somewhere else on behalf of their lord. So, um, I think with crusades, the duration is long, you know, so you could expect someone to be for quite away for quite a long time and that might potentially make a difference. But that's only for the noble classes. I mean, unfortunately, we have much less information about those people lower down the social scale who are going on, um, who are going on crusade and how that impacts on people at home. Um, you know, who takes on the roles within, you know, either urban environments or rural environments um, during that period. That's very difficult to say. Okay. And then there's this 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 point that we touched on a bit earlier about the, the question of consent about whether women wives wanted their husbands to go on crusade and you just flagged mm. up an example of someone who sent their husband back. <laughs> um, but did they did, did they uh, could they could they get involved in the conversations about it? Could they stop their husbands from going? Did they want to? Um, or were they generally more actively encouraging them to go? What, what, what do we know about that? Um, the, uh, again, we get a sort of a mixture of views. 
um, but very little actual hard evidence. So, for example, we have um, sermons by um, Jacques Vitry, who uh, was a preacher for the Fifth Crusade. He sort of gave these example sermons where he describes having given a sermon on the Crusades and, and somebody's wife stopped him from uh, going to hear the sermon by locking him in an attic. Uh, but he managed to escape and jump out the window and take the cross anyway. Uh, but we have no names named, you know, no specific sort of information. Um we then have another example from Gerald of Wales. Um, he talks about a particular nobleman whose wife, who, who takes the cross, but when he gets home, his wife says, no way, you can't go. Um, and then um, a few days later, she rolls over in her sleep and kills her child in her sleep. And this is seen as a judgment of God for, for her not allowing him to go and crusade. So again, they're very moral kind of stories. Um, but difficult to kind of pinpoint, you know, an individual who actually puts their foot down and says, no, you, you can't go. Okay. Um, I mean, we hear um, Louis IX's mum, Blanche of Castile, was apparently not keen on him going on crusade, um, mainly because she'd just spent a really long time in the Regency trying to sort France out <laughs> so that he had an inheritance to come into. Um, but... Um, but once he'd sort of made it clear that this is what he wanted to do, she supports him and acts as regent for him again while he's away. So, um, so yeah, the, there's, there's definitely the impression from the sources that women are reluctant to let their menfolk go. Um, but we then do have examples from Third Crusade Chronicles, which say that, that brides incited their husbands and mothers incited their sons to go on the crusade. So... It's, yeah, that we get evidence from both sides, really. Okay. Now, charging uh, uh, back across geographically to the Crusader States, you, <laughs> one of your other categories of, of women involved was women in the Crusader States. So what's, what was going on there? How, how, were, how were women um, involved um, in the actual Crusader States? Um, well, I think um, initially we have situations where some of the first Crusaders um, take wives from um, Christian communities out in the east. So particularly around Edessa, you find people marrying into the Armenian Christian community. Um, but then, um, especially with the Kingdom of Jerusalem, we get a situation whereby in the mid-12th century, um, uh, a, a woman inherits, Queen Melisande, um, and her her sisters all have important roles in the other so-called crusader states. So um, they become kind of integral to the politics during that period. And um, a series of kind of female rulers then occur in the later sort of 12th century as well. So um, they have kind of quite a strong presence. And I think just generally, you know, it's it's there's um you know consistent warfare going on in uh, throughout this period so numbers of the aristocracy are coming out and dying and then um there are usually you know a supply of widows or daughters or for for, for new crusaders to marry so they're providing this kind of network kinship network really um that keeps things going and often, again, you know, acting in quite prominent political roles. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're sort of we're, we're heading a, a bit over time, but oh, there's, there's one, no, 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 it's, it's, it, because it's so interesting. There's one question that I've, I think we we do need to think about a bit is um, which which you look at in your work is kind of the nature of the sources about the Crusades and how they yeah. maybe skew how we look at them, uh, and that that as you point out, sort of is a result of the sort of people who are writing about the crusade. So just tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Are we are we getting a, a skewed view because of the nature of the sources that survive? Um I think well we in for um for for the Western sources, you know, we are kind of dependent largely on male ecclesiastic writers um who are trying to present the crusade in a certain light. So um with the first crusade for example um we have maybe what we have a few that are eyewitness accounts but most of them again are written by clergy there's one potentially the anonymous jester francorum that we think may have been written by a lay person um but again they're all very religious in tone they all have um a particular agenda and the majority of them are written 
after the successful capture of the uh, of of um, the city of Jerusalem. Mm. So they're kind of explaining how this amazing and miraculous event, as they see it, occurred and how God allowed it to happen. So it's part of their sort of historical explanation of events, and those texts are then being circulated in order to help encourage and enthuse more people to go on crusade. So they have an agenda in that they want to get the right sort of people. They want to appeal to knights. They want to appeal to nobles. They want to have military men of fighting age. So they can be quite critical of women as a group, but they can also be critical of, you know, poor people, non-combatants, those people who are slowing down the army. So so that they're very critical, for example, of the first wave of uh, of crusaders who go in 1096, what we sometimes call the People's Crusade, um, precisely for those reasons. It it was seen to be an unorganised, disorganised rabble of peasants and women and everything else who were uh, sinful and dreadful, and this is why God didn't allow them to be successful. Whereas the next group that were led by you know, important named noblemen that we have, you know, a lot of information about and who were set up as crusade heroes, effectively, um, there seem to be the sort of people that that they want to encourage to crusade. So so there's kind of two main reasons, really, for, 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 for excluding women, I think, is that, you know, first of all, they don't want to encourage women to go. And second of all, you know, crusading is predominantly a military activity. And as we've discussed, women have limited roles in those events. They tend to be more auxiliary roles than, than being involved in the actual fighting. And that touches on another of your research areas, this question of masculinity mm. of, uh, in the period. And so I suppose these sources are looking to present this idea of the, the masculine superhero male warrior type thing. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, that, that is nowhere more evident, really, in the treatment of Godfrey of Bouillon, who um, is a first crusader who, I mean, to be fair, if you read some of the uh, some, some accounts of his activities on crusade, he, he's not particularly outstanding uh, in terms of his uh, achievements on the crusade. Although late, in later sources, increasingly, we hear about him doing marvellous feats of uh, um uh, you know, uh, military uh, might, uh, um, cutting a Turk in half with a single blow, that kind of thing. Um, and this is largely to sort of expl- explain to people how and why he is chosen to be King of Jerusalem, you know, ultimately, um, out of the crusaders that are left when they capture the city. Um, and Godfrey dies shortly after um, taking on this role. I mean, he says he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be king uh, in the city where Christ was king. So he calls himself the advocate or defender of the of the holy city um, and then dies soon afterwards. So he becomes this almost mythical figure, mainly, I think, because he didn't have time to put a foot wrong. <laughs> um, but he is, you know, in later, uh, in, in later sort of stories and romances, there's stories about him being descended from a swan. There's... Um, uh, he's included in one of the nine worthies, so alongside Charlemagne and King Arthur, you know, these these key sort of mythical figures. And, um, yeah, the masculinity is, and, and the, the, it sort of combines with the era of chivalry, you know, when the notion of chivalry is coming to its height at the end of the 12th century, I think that, um, you know, they try to create an ideal of crusading based on the the knight, you know, the martial military figure of the knight. And this is your kind of, you know, uh, ideal person to go on crusade. And it's one reason for kind of, you know, excluding others from that narrative. Mm, women don't fit into that. Very yeah. Well, uh, well the, only, the only reason they do is if they put other men to shame. <laughs> so, you know, if they're acting beyond their sex and even women are doing something, then all of you sitting listening who haven't taken the cross should feel ashamed of yourselves. That's... That's kind of the okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, sort of wrapping up, is there uh, is there anything obvious that I've missed? Any big strands in your research that we should have talked about? Oh goodness! Um, I mean, obviously, I work quite a lot. I've done a lot of work on women and men uh, in the context of crusade. I'm also particularly interested in the role of clergy um, because, of course, clergy go on crusade as well, and they exist in this sort of world where they're not supposed to be fighting. And yet they need to be present on crusade because they have to provide spiritual guidance for the army. 
And they kind of occupy this really interesting space as well in comparison to women and men on crusade. And they're, they're kind of still trying to be defined in masculine terms, but when they can't fight, how do they still kind of uh, explain their usefulness in the context of the army? So that's another kind of area for investigation. But to yeah. talk for another day, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you've got you've got the likes of your Odo of Bayeux in the uh, mm-hmm. in the Norman Conquest, who's famously in the Battle of Hastings holding his club, and he's holding it because it's a, a club which isn't going to shed blood. Was that? that is, well, is yeah, that... that's that's the idea. And Odo, of course, goes on the first crusade, but then dies. Uh, so he dies in Sicily, um, and um, so he was, you know, prepared to undertake that that journey. It would have been really interesting to see what what would happen. Um, Adhemar of Le Puy becomes the papal legate for the First Crusade. Um, so he's sort of from southern France in the contingent of Raymond of Saint Gilles, and um, you know, there's questions over was he actually involved in military activity or not. Certainly, some sources suggest that you know he is he does play kind of a significant role in the fighting. And it goes totally against, in some ways, the narrative of the reformed papacy at this time that clergy are supposed to are not supposed to be involved in in in, in fighting. Mm. Okay. Mm. And so sort of the final thing there, so where's where's your research going next with this? Is there are you gonna be exploring some new avenues? Um yeah, so um so obviously we had um following on from women crusading in the Holy Land um last year um we produced a collection of essays, myself, Catherine Lewis and Matthew Mesley on um, crusading and masculinities, um, which was which was great, actually, because we've got people looking like people from the field of gender studies who hadn't really looked at the crusades before to, to try and discuss some of the, some, some of these aspects, but also well-known crusade historians. Um, moving on from that, I'm working on a book on gender and the crusades for Palgrave Macmillan, uh, which I hope will be out next year. Um, and um, yeah, uh, to be continued. I think there's plenty more uh, 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 life in this topic yet. I think, and um, it's a really exciting field to be involved in at the moment. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, Natasha, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your time. So that's Natasha Hodgson uh, from uh, Nottingham Trent University, and we look forward to your book. Uh, does it have a title yet? The How Great Just one Gender year? and the Crusades. Gender and the Crusades. We look forward to that next year, and uh, and maybe we'll come back and, and talk to you again on the History Extra podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was Natasha Hodgson. You can find plenty more podcasts and articles on the Crusades on our website, at historyextra.com forward slash crusades. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for another medieval podcast when Gordon Noble will be speaking about the pits. <laughs>